Luke chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 14. We've been in a series in Luke, we were in a series in Luke in the spring, where we did the birth and infancy and, and childhood of Jesus, and now we're jumping into the beginning of his ministry, and so we're starting there this morning with the beginning of the ministry of Christ. So Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let me pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand your word as we look at it this morning, that we'd understand who Jesus was and what he's done, that we would be people who look to him in faith and trust in him and, and see the story that you've lived out in him and the story that he's proclaiming to us. Father, that we would love that and trust in him. You'd help us to be people who who know that we're bankrupt spiritually and blind and poor and pitiable and naked and we need, we need your grace given to us only through Jesus. We'd understand that and rejoice in you and be thankful. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I went to a, a service of, of a church um, in the previous past, I won't tell you when, but recently, um, and I went there in order to, to because I, I'd heard good things were going on, and I wanted to see what was happening, and, and I wanted to be able to be encouraged by what was going on, and, and see what they were doing that maybe we could learn from as a church ourselves, and, and so I stopped in, and actually Randy, our music guy, went with me, and we were just checking things out, and, and trying to learn, and while we were there, the pastor started to give a really um, convicting message about our fallenness. He went to Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 and talked about how uh, we're a mess, how we're fallen, how as a result of the fall, we tend to blame shift, right? We tend to say, well, I'm going to blame it all on this person or that person. I'm not going to take responsibility for my own sin. Just like Adam, when God came to him and said, you know what, Adam, why did you do this? Adam's response was, well, it's that woman you gave me, Right? And then when he came to Eve, Eve, why'd you do this? Eve said, it's the serpent, right? She blamed it on the devil, and so on and so forth. And he pointed out the fact that we, we often don't take responsibility for what's happened in our lives. We don't take the opportunity um, to recognize that, that we need to have ownership of our own mess, right? Whether it's our mess from the past or it's our mess presently. I thought, this is great. This guy's getting after it. He's, he's convinced me that I'm a mess. Started talking about the various ways we are a mess. And then here's what he did. He took out a piece of paper, and he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write down your story and what a mess you are and what that looks like. Write down and say, I own this. This is me. This is my mess. I've made it. I said, okay. And then I want you to bring that up after you've written it down and put it in this basket and the front. And so everybody just come up and put it in the basket. And so I said, all right, here, they're going to come up and put it. So people wrote down the story. And then they walked forward and they started putting it in these baskets. And they said, well, we're going to sing some songs and we're going to show you on the screens the mess that's happening in various people's lives. Not going to put their names on there. Nobody's name's on there, but we're going to show you. So we're watching this on the screen and I'm starting to become increasingly depressed as I'm seeing people saying, you know what, um, I don't love my husband anymore. 
and I'm not sure what to do. I, I, I'm an alcoholic, and I, I, I'm struggling with getting over it. I, my life is feeling increasingly desperate. Please help. And I'm seeing these people who are a mess. Their lives are a complete wreck. And he stands up after all this and says, that's your story. That's your story. You need to own your story. People are crying. That's your story. Now, let's pray God gives you a better story. Let's pray he gives you a better one from here on out. God bless. Have a good week. And, and I've, I've got to tell you, I, I, I wanted to stand up and start yelling. I'm not kidding. I was so angry, so infuriated. I wanted to say, he already gave them a good story. Why don't you tell them about it? What do you mean? Let's pray God gives you a good story. He already gave you one. It's about Jesus. If you would go forward in your Bible from Genesis 3, you'll find it. It's a story about how God sent Jesus to live perfectly in our lives. To not have a mess of a life like we have. And to go to a cross and pay the penalty for the mess we've made. So that when we look to him, we're credited with his righteousness. We're credited with his good life. And he's paid the penalty for our sin and we're forgiven. We're washed clean. We have a new life. How do you stop short of telling them that? That's the story we look at. When we look at Luke, we look at Luke, it's the story of Jesus. It's the good news. Look, I could come up here and pound you with the bad news all the time, and I'm going to pound you with some bad news this morning. I'm just going to promise you up front, you're going to get some bad news. But if I don't get to the good news... I failed to preach the gospel. And if I failed to preach the gospel, I have failed to be an under-shepherd or a minister of Jesus Christ. Whatever else I am, I'm not a minister of the gospel bringing good news. Satan can come to you and tell you all the bad news. In fact, he does it all the time, doesn't he? You're a loser. God would never accept you. God wants nothing to do with you. Look at your life. You can't ever go into a church or pretend like you're going to have some kind of relationship with God until you clean up your act. And he will lie to you all day long. And you know why it's a lie? Because he's telling you half the truth. Or the fact, we are losers. We are people that God would have nothing to do with. But God in his great love, this is the rest of the story. See, when you take the truth, when you take a half-truth and let it masquerade around as the whole truth, as Charles Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher, once said, it's a complete lie. You stop short. Forget to tell people the rest of the story. The bad news is we're a mess. The good news is Jesus wasn't. And he cleaned it up for us. And we trust in him. I was frustrated, just to tell you that. You can't tell. Because as we look at Luke, we see the story. It's a story that Jesus preaches. And it's a story about Jesus. It is to that story that we look today. So let's look at how Luke introduces the ministry of Jesus. Because that's what he's doing. He's introducing now the ministry of Jesus. Look at verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him, that word report from the Greek means his fame. His fame was spreading. Report about him went out through all the surrounding country. In other words, people are coming to know more and more about who Jesus is. Jesus has been out doing ministry for about a year when this story picks up. Okay? Luke starts his gospel as far as the ministry and proclamation of Jesus. He starts that about a year into Jesus' ministry. He's been out proclaiming, and he's getting more and more popular. He's been going to the surrounding country, and now he's returning home. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He's becoming well-known as a great Bible teacher. Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. 
That's his hometown. And so you know nothing, the saying is, nothing good comes from Nazareth, right? It's sort of like if you're from L.A., or if you live in L.A. and they hear that you're from Bakersfield, right? Can anything good come from Bakersfield, right? And if you're in Bakersfield, then it's like Taft. Can anything good come from, right? You, you understand how that works, okay? That's where Nazareth is, Nazareth is, okay? That's where he's brought up. And this is his first sermon, by the way, in his hometown. First sermon Jesus ever preaches in his hometown. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. I, and I want you to catch that. On the Sabbath day, that's the day that they worship, which is on Saturday, which was the seventh day of the week. We now worship on Sunday, the first day of the week, because that's the day in which the Lord Jesus was risen from the dead and began the new creation, and we worship there because the apostles did. And so we worship on the first day of the week. They worshiped on the seventh, which is Saturday. So they worshiped that day. They came together in a place called a synagogue. That's where they would worship together, like we call a church. And it was Jesus' custom to go there. It's an interesting phrase, by the way, just as a side note. Jesus went to church regularly. That was his custom. The Son of God the Messiah, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, it was his custom to go regularly to church. And I want you to stop and think about that. Because how many hypocrites were in the synagogue? As many hypocrites as were in here, right? And Jesus didn't say, well, I'm not going to go hang out with those sinful hypocrites. And how many fallen leaders or people who were trying to lead that were a mess we're leading in the synagogue, 100%. 100% of them were sinners and a mess, they, even the leaders. And yet Jesus went regularly and submitted to them. How, how much more, if the perfect one does that, ought we to see that as our custom as well? That's just a side note. It's thrown in for free, okay? And he stood up to read. Here's what happens. When it's on Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And that's not an uncommon practice. When you're a popular teacher who's been heard of, you would travel from place to place and you would, um, if you came in, they would have heard of you. The good report is out about you. So they'd say, hey, we want you to teach. And the first thing they'd ask you to do is stand up and read. And here's what they did. Every week in the synagogue, every week they would read from the law. That's the first five books of the Bible. Then they would read from the prophets. And so Jesus stands up to read. And verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. In other words, when he stood up to read, it was time for the reading of the prophets. And they give him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. And before we read that, I, I want you to think about this. Here's how these were. They did not have Bibles like this. They had a scroll, okay? That, that, that's, that baby's long when it's rolled out, right? And it doesn't have chapter and verse references, Okay? In Hebrew, it doesn't even have space between the words. The letters just all run right into each other. Okay? So imagine them rolling this long scroll, and this, this tells you something about Jesus' familiarity with the Word of God. Okay? Their regular spoken language is Aramaic. Hebrew was something that you only used in the synagogue, which means Je Jesus was in some way educated. He obviously knew Hebrew. And he unrolls the scroll, and he is able to go to Isaiah 61. Right? He just unrolls it and finds Isaiah 61 and starts reading it. Then he goes back and reads one verse out of Isaiah 58. But he just goes straight there. And he has to read it in Hebrew, and then he has to translate it into Aramaic for the crowd. That's what Jesus did. So he reads it in Hebrew, then he translates it. Look at the first verse of that passage from Isaiah 61, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. And that's the word for Messiah. Let's talk about the Christ or the Messiah. The christening is when you're anointed by the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening to him. He's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. He is the Messiah. And he was anointed by the Holy Spirit where, if you remember, it was at his baptism. Early in the Gospel of Luke, we see his infancy narrative, and then he goes and gets baptized, and he gets tempted. He was anointed at his baptism to be the Messiah. Now, was he always the Son of God? Yes. Was he always planned to be the Messiah? Yes. However, he was a man, and he was God. And as a man, he had a day in which he was set apart for ministry, 
for his messianic ministry. And that day was his baptism when he was anointed when the Holy Spirit came upon him. And that's where his ministry began. And what was his messianic ministry? He's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor. Now, if you go down to the next phrase, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. If you go down to verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, Jesus is saying that when Isaiah is being fulfilled, Isaiah 61 is being fulfilled in him, what he's saying is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach. That word keruso in the Greek, to proclaim, is to preach, and he uses it three times. I've been anointed by the Holy Spirit to preach. That's what he says. And a day when the church, that's today, is disinterested in preaching and is looking for gimmicks and uh, power and all sorts of gimmicks, we need to return to the reality that the Spirit was poured out on Jesus to preach. Right? You know the Puritans? You guys have heard of the Puritans? They're always mischaracterized and poorly treated by history although a great group of people who are largely responsible for the freedoms we even have today, the Puritans um, used to have a saying about this. They said the Lord had one son, right? He had one son, and he sent him to preach. That's what he sent him to do. Yet most guys in seminary, I don't know if you guys know this, there's a statistic out, more than 50% of the men who are currently in seminary, that's a school training to be pastors, report that they don't want to preach. They're there to be trained to be pastors, but don't want to preach. God didn't send his son to be an activities director, okay? He didn't send him to be a therapist or a social coordinator. It's not what he sent him for. He sent his son in the power of the Spirit to preach the gospel. And he sends the under-shepherds in Jesus' name to do the same thing. And the first sermon that Jesus preaches in his hometown is recorded here. It's the first sermon that Luke gives us. And there's a reason why Luke gives us this sermon first. It's because it sets the pattern for the rest of the ministry that you're going to see of Jesus and Luke. In other words, he starts off Jesus' ministry with this passage for a reason, with this sermon from Christ for a reason, because it sets the course. It's like what Luke does in Acts. Luke also wrote the book of Acts. And if you remember or recall with the book of Acts, right at the beginning, what is one of the first things put at the beginning of the book of Acts? Is the sermon of Peter at Pentecost. And Luke puts that there, one, because historically it happened, but he front loads the book there to set the picture or the pattern for the rest of the book of Acts. And that's what Luke does here with Jesus' first sermon. So what do we learn about the ministry of Jesus from this sermon? And what do we learn? Thanks, Luke, for putting it there. What does it teach us? Well, we learn that his ministry is proclaiming and accomplishing. Hear that? Proclaiming and accomplishing the joyfully good news of salvation. Hear that? The incredibly good news of salvation. That's what we learn. Jesus didn't come to preach bad news. Jesus came to preach good news. He didn't say, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me so that I can convict and condemn you in your sin and make you feel really bad and guilty. So you come here every week to church and you self-atone through giving offerings and through feeling really bad and through crying a little bit and singing some songs and doing some service for the church. That makes you feel a little better that day and then you feel miserable all week again and come back next week and self-atone again while I tell you some more bad news. That's not what Jesus said is the course of his ministry. The course of his ministry is I've come to preach. I've been anointed by the Spirit to preach the good news. So here's the question. Who qualifies for this good news? It's good news. Jesus has come to save us. Who qualifies for it? Who qualifies for it? I mean, what do I need to bring to the table? What do I need to bring to the table to get what Jesus is offering? What, what is my part in my salvation? I mean, what, what do I contribute? Do I contribute good works? Do I contribute a good attitude? Do I contribute positive thinking? Church attendance? I mean, what do I contribute? And the answer is nothing. 
The good news is that you contribute nothing except this. Ready? Something negative. You contribute your ungodliness. You contribute your sin. You contribute the mess of your life. That's what you contribute. And Jesus actually gives us four qualifications we need to meet. You ready? Four of them. Here's what he says in the Sermon of Nazareth. There are four qualifications you need to meet to, to have for the good news to be for you. Here's the first one. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Look at verse 18. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. In other words, here's your first qualification. You need to be bankrupt and helpless. Okay? You want to get this news? You want to be someone who gets to receive the good news of Jesus? Then here's the first qualification. You have to be bankrupt and helpless. Jesus picks up this passage when he starts quoting Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And at the end of it, if you look at verse 20, he says this, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, which is a normal thing you do when you're going to teach. You'd roll up the scroll, give it back after you read it, and then you would sit down to teach. That was the way they taught. And he sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, now imagine this, after you've read this incredible passage about the good news, he says to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What are you saying? He's saying that passage there in Isaiah 61 is talking about me. That's pointing to me. I'm the good news. I'm here proclaiming it to you. Jesus is taking this passage and saying, it's about me. He goes on and actually says it's about him in Luke chapter 7 as well when John the Baptist asks him the question about whether or not he's the Messiah or should he wait for somebody else. And in Luke chapter 7 and verse 18, Jesus responds. Luke chapter 7 verse 18, Jesus responds to him and says this, And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that, tour, excuse me, in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Hear that? Tell John what you hear and see. I am the suffering servant that Isaiah talked about. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm the one, the Messiah, who was promised throughout the Old Testament, and I have come to bring good news to the poor. So who are the poor? That Greek, same Greek word is picked up by Matthew in Matthew chapter 5 in what's called the famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. When he starts off, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's those who are bankrupt. Here he's talking about the, both the physically and spiritually poor. He's using the physically poor as a picture of what happens when you're spiritually poor. You're helpless. You have nothing. You bring nothing to God. You have nothing to contribute. You guys hear that? It's realizing what is said also in the Old Testament that all your good works are as filthy rags before the Lord. That, that's what they're valuable for, right? It says, I'm coming to preach the good news to those who are destitute, bankrupt, those who recognize they have nothing in their hands. They can bring nothing before God. And those people tend to be more generally, materially poor as well. It's difficult for a rich man to be saved because rich men think they don't need anything. That's just proverbially true. It's also proverbially true that poor people recognize their need. Proverbially means generally. Not always. You can have humble rich people and you can, have, you can also have arrogant poor people. It happens. But proverbially, generally, when you're poor, you recognize you need. And what Jesus said, when you're poor in spirit, that's when the good news comes to you. You want to know if you qualify? Do you recognize your life's a mess? Do you recognize you really have nothing to give to God? You can't offer him anything. 
then you qualify for the good news. If you don't recognize you're a mess, you're never going to see it as good news. You don't know you have a problem. The problem is that because you're a mess, because you're a sinner, God's wrath is bearing down on you. You've got to recognize the problem to recognize the solution to the problem, which is Jesus. Second thing he says, you have to be imprisoned by sin. You don't only have to be spiritually bankrupt, you've got to be imprisoned by sin. Okay? Look at what he says. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, literally the prisoners of war. So he sent me to do. I've come to proclaim liberty to those who are prisoners of war, to set them free. None of these people in Nazareth, by the way, were prisoners of war at this time. So what he's talking about is a bondage, a spiritual bondage, a person who is a prisoner to sin and idolatry. Right? They're in bondage to their sin. And we're all prisoners of some kind of sin and idolatry. I mean, I don't know what, grip, what sin has a grip on your life, but I, I do know what sin has a grip on mine. Let me give you some examples of what might have a grip on your life. How about anger? Does anger have a grip on your life? I mean, do you blow up easily? Are you easily irritated? You lose your temper quickly? Or hate? Are there people you just can't stand and want nothing to do with? You just hate them. Bitterness. Struggle with forgiving somebody? I mean, keep a good list and harbor your bitterness toward them? I mean, how many of you guys keep a good list of wrongs against people? Money or material things. Are you constantly in the, when I get this, then I'll be happy syndrome? Shopping when you can't afford something? Suffering from discontent until you get what you desire? Or how about the sensuality? Sensuality is an issue. Struggling with sexual sin or pornography? Does it have a grip on your life? Or guilt? Constantly feel bad for your sin and try to self-atone by beating yourself up? Just if I beat myself up enough. Anxiety or worry? Overcome with worry about every detail of the future rather than trusting God? And gratitude. You constantly notice what's lacking rather than what God has given you. Thus, you don't experience much thankfulness. Or fear of man. You're constantly concerned about what others think of you. You're constantly worried about how they perceive your actions. And you're even willing to lie to others even just a little bit, so that they'll think well of you. You ever done that? I've done that. You ever done that? Somebody says, oh, you know, um, I, I was asking you to pray for me. Did you pray for me? Yep. <laughs> Why did I lie to them? Because I want them to think well of me. Gluttony person who overdoes it, whether that's food or alcohol or entertainment. Doesn't really matter. You can participate, participate in gluttony in all sorts of forms. Laziness. You always have an excuse for being idle. You know, you always have an excuse for being unemployed. Always an excuse for being incapable of moving your life forward in school or career or for some of you young guys, just general hygiene. Do you, do you always have an excuse? Covetousness. Struggle with comparing yourself to other people. Being jealous of what they have that you don't, whether that's stuff they own. Like I covet some of your pools. Not going to lie to you, I do. Sometimes I have a friend, I went, I went, a pastor in town who has an incredible library, and I went into his library, and after a little while I told him, I'm going to have to leave now because the 10th commandment is becoming increasingly violated in my life. So I'm coveting your library. There's some stuff, or, or maybe it's their talents, or their looks, or whatever it is. Or are you enslaved to your passions? You know what I mean by this? This is the kind of person who's always given over to their passions and emotions. I never want to do anything I don't feel like doing, so I don't do it. 
I don't feel like doing it. It makes me sick to my stomach when I think about doing that. I don't like doing that. Oh, so you just go with that then. No. See, I can keep going, but you get the point, right? See, if you recognize yourself here, here's the point. If you recognize yourself in the description, then you know you meet the qualifications to receive the good news Jesus is proclaiming. He's come to proclaim to you liberty. Yes, you've been enslaved and imprisoned by this sin. That's true. Yes. But he's come to tell you that Jesus is going to pay the penalty for that sin. And not only is he going to pay the penalty for it, he's going to break, break the power of that sin in your life. And one day, one day he's going to remove the presence of it from you. On the day when he will return, you won't have that in your life anymore at all. Third qualification, you have to be spiritually blind to receive the good news. It says, and recovering of sight to the blind. See, Jesus doesn't just give sight to those who are physically blind, right? He does do that, and we'll find that out, but he's constantly doing that as a picture. I, he says, I care about the physical body, so I am going to heal these people who are physically blind, but I'm always going to bring a message out of it, aren't I? That's what Jesus does. I'm going to heal this man who's physically blind, and now I'm going to tell you that your eyes need to be opened up to see the truth, that you need me. It's this giving of spiritual sight. He has to open our eyes to see the truth. You see, as, as unbelievers, those who are unbelievers, when we were unbelievers or those who are currently unbelievers, you can't see the truth of your need for God. You can't see that you need his provision in Jesus. You can only see enough truth to condemn you. That's it. But not enough to save you. So Jesus says, I've come to give sight to the spiritually blind. Why? So they can see and savor Jesus. And that's what he told the Apostle Paul to do as well. In Acts chapter 26, just listen to this, verse 17, 18. Jesus says this to the Apostle Paul, I am sending you to open their eyes. I'm sending you to do? I'm sending you to open their eyes. So that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. See, whenever we proclaim the gospel to others, we are joining Jesus in opening the eyes of the blind. Right. The Holy Spirit works through the proclamation of the Word of God, the gospel. It works through that. And the Holy Spirit does this whole work. We don't do any of it, but here's what we do. As one pastor said, while the Holy Spirit does all the work through the gospel, we've got to give the Holy Spirit something to work with by telling people the gospel. It's what God's given us to do. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on the one whom they've not believed? And how can they believe in the one whom they've never hear, heard? And how can they hear if no one preaches to them? May we be faithful. May we be faithful to join in Jesus' missions to mission to open the eyes of the blind. And always doing it because we're aware that it's a response to him for graciously opening our eyes. Hear that? Graciously opening our eyes. Because we are blind. It's one of the qualifications to be saved. You want to be a child of God? You want to be adopted by the Father? The qualifications, you got to be bankrupt, nothing to offer him. You got to be imprisoned by sin, captive of it. You got to be spiritually blind. You just can't even see your need for him. Then he comes in and does his work. Fourth, you need to be bruised and broken by life bruised and broken by life. Look what he says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. See, Jesus didn't just come to proclaim liberty to the oppressed. He came to set them free, didn't he? Here's to set at liberty, not just to proclaim, but to set it, to actually free them. And this is a phrase um, that Jesus uses in Isaiah, who he's quoting, and that is talking about those who've been crushed by life's circumstances. Is that you? You've been crushed by the circumstances in your life? You've been squashed, broken by sin and its effects. Sin done to you and sin committed by you. These are people who are oppressed 
as Jesus says, they're, they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They've been beat down by the fallenness and corruption of this world. I don't know, have you gotten to the point where you recognize that you're oppressed by sin and its effects? And, and you got to the point where you see sin all around you and you see sin in you and you hate it because of what it does to people and what it does to you. See, that's one of the qualifications for receiving the good news. You get to the point where you're just crushed by sin. You have to be a person who knows and feels and is overwhelmed and oppressed by the sin around you. You can't be a person who thinks this life is pretty good. Jesus didn't come to make a pretty good life a little better. That is an asinine reason for God to send his son to die on a cross. I thought I'd make your life a little better. So you have to be a person who, who recognizes that you're not just not that bad, you're a wreck. You need him. And in saying this, Jesus picks up from Isaiah 58, 6 here. He actually goes back and quotes Isaiah 58, 6 because Israel was told that you think you're religious, but you're really not because you haven't really been changed and transformed and you're not really living out of a transformed heart in a way that actually cares for other people. And so what Jesus is saying is, I've come to do that. You're not Israel setting at liberty those who are oppressed. You continue to oppress them, and I have come to do it. What you have failed to do, I have done. Jesus, Jesus has succeeded where Israel's failed. He's doing what God commanded them. But you know what? I don't want to stop with that application of Isaiah 58 because there's another one. I want you to hold your hand in Luke 4 and turn to Isaiah 58 if you would. I want you to see this passage because what I don't want to do is, is walk out of here and make you think that if you came in here you know, looking like a complete mess, you know, to everyone else that I'm talking to you, but if you came in here looking kind of cleaned up and good, that I'm not talking to you, right? Because I'm, I'm talking to everybody here, all of us. Look at Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 1, because I want you to know that religious people are a mess too. In fact, often, far often worse off than irreligious people because they don't know they're a mess, they don't know they need Jesus. Look at verse 1 of 50, Isaiah 58. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Words, the Lord's telling Isaiah, tell Israel about their sin. And then the Lord goes on and says this. Now imagine if the Lord said this about our church. This would be the church I'd want to go to. Listen to this description. Yet they seek me daily. Can you imagine if all the people seek them? That's what the Lord says about it. They seek me daily. And they delight to know my ways. As if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They seek me daily. They delight to know my ways. They pursue righteousness and the judgment of God. Hear that? Sounds like a pretty good church, doesn't it? People were pretty committed. They delight to draw near to God. That's these people. And then listen to their question. Here's what the people respond. Why have we fasted and you see it not? See what they're saying? God, we, we delighted to draw near to you. We sought you. We sought you every day. We delighted to draw near to you. So how come when we fast and pray, how, how can we do that? You, you, don't, you don't respond. In other words, We've, we deserve better than the response we're getting from you. We have, through our good deeds, in some way obligated you to be gracious to us. He goes on, look what he says. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? That's a pretty funny thing to say, isn't it? I've humbled myself and nobody's recognizing how humble I am. That's what they're saying to the Lord. Behold, in the day of your fast, and this is the Lord's response, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and you oppre and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like, th like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? In other words, is that what I want? Is a day for you to humble yourself? That's not what I want, the Lord says. Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? 
Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then, when you do these things, in other words, when you're so transformed by me, by God, when you're so transformed that it overflows in a life of doing things for people that doesn't benefit you at all, Right? Not fasting and praying and humbling yourself, hoping God will give you some benefit. But you're doing it because you love the Lord, you trust in him, he's been gracious to you, he's transformed you, and now you're helping people who can give you no benefit in return. When that happens, then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily, your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Here's the point. You may think you're religious, and glory in your good deeds. You may pray a lot and read your Bible a lot and give your tithes and put up a front of morality. But you're really just a phony if you're not looking to Jesus, trusting in him and changed by him. You still need salvation from Jesus. You're still every bit a sinner in need of the gospel as those people who look like they're more a mess than you. You've just done all these good works for your own benefit, just like those immoral, irreligious people have done all the sins they've done for their own benefit. You've done all these good things for your own benefit. So you can get something from the Father, not so you can get the Father. And the conclusion of the matter is this. You must know you're poor, pitiable, naked, and blind to receive the good news. You add nothing to your salvation but sin. That's it. God justifies the ungodly. So what is the good news? Look at verse 19 of Luke 4. We'll really finish in this verse today. Luke 19 of verse or Luke 14 verse 19 Luke 4 verse 19. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what Jesus has come to do. Now I want you to grab onto this. Grab a hold of this. Jesus has come to proclaim to you that this is the year of the Lord's favor. This is the day of salvation. In other words, what he's saying is, I have come to show you God's kindness. A kindness you didn't earn and that you don't deserve, but a kindness that God desires to show you because of his great love for you. That's why I came. See, he's quoting from Isaiah 62 and uh, 61, verse 2, and at the end of that verse, it also says, and to bring the judgment of God. And Jesus leaves off the part about the judgment of God, not because Jesus at some point isn't going to judge. He is. But what he tells the disciples, I did not come into the world to condemn the world because the world was condemned already. I came in to save it. Now, there is a day coming when Jesus returns in which his righteous wrath will be poured out. But Jesus removes that from this part. He doesn't say, today is not the day of damnation. Today is the day of salvation. The day of damnation is coming. But today is the day of salvation. This is the year of God's favor. And Jesus came to proclaim the day that all the Old Testament saints were looking forward to. That day's arrived. Because the Messiah God has promised is here. And he's announcing that he's come to save you. And he uses interesting language when it says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This picks up on something in the Old Testament called the year of Jubilee. Have you ever heard of that? Year of Jubilee. It's specifically, and I'm not going to have you read it, but it's specifically in Leviticus 25, verse 8 and following. The year of Jubilee is something that happened in Israel every 50 years. What happened is, you know, every seventh day was the Sabbath. They rested. And then every seventh year was a Sabbath year for the land, essentially. And the land would rest, and they wouldn't work. And, and uh, they would eat off of what they'd saved up to that point. And everything would be at rest. We all like that idea, don't we? Every seventh year? Wouldn't that be great? Okay. The culture just took a year off. We just hung out. But then, then the, every seventh time that happened, after every seven times that seven years occurred, or four, after 49 years, on the 50th year, 
they would take that year off called the year of Jubilee. And not only would they take the year off, but something else would happen that year. They would blow a trumpet that the Jubilee had begun. And when the trumpet was blown, what it meant is that everything is now going to be set right. If you have debts, they're gone. Hear that? Your debts are gone. If you're in slavery, you're free. If, if, there's, if there's land that belongs to your family that has somehow been removed to you, it's re- from you, it's returned to you. It's a year of jubilee. Everything that was wrong is set right that year. It usually came once in a person's lifetime. And what Jesus is saying is, I have come to blow the trumpet of the year of jubilee. I am proclaiming to you that day has come when everything is going to be set right. I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's like Jesus is saying this. I'm sounding the trumpet that with me comes the season in which the Lord is showing you immense and undeserved kindness. With me has come the season in which the Lord is lifting you up out of your spiritual bankruptcy and poverty. He's setting you free from your enslavement to sin and idolatry. He's giving you the spiritual sight that you lack so that you can say, I once was blind, but now I see. He's picking you up and freeing you from oppression and brokenness that's deeply wounded and and bruised you. He's forgiving you for your sins, no matter how terrible. He's picking you up out of the mess of your life, no matter how blind and hard your heart was, no matter how dirty and deep the hole you dug was. He's breaking the grip of sin, slavery, or the slavery that sin has on you no matter how tight that grip seems to be. In other words, what Jesus is saying is God is doing all this because he's chosen in his great love for you to be merciful and kind. That's why I'm here. I'm here to proclaim that to you. I'm here to proclaim to you that God is showing you favor. This is the time for God to show you favor. This is the season. This is the year for that. When he's going to set all things right, Jesus says it's being done in me. See, I'm the one who accomplishes and proclaims all this. So what do you do with it? This is the year of the Lord's favor. Do you know that? We're still in it. He hasn't returned yet to bring the condemnation. We're still in the year of his favor. That's why Paul can say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2 that today is the day of salvation. What do you do with it? You recognize that you're described in this passage. You hear that? So you do. You recognize you're described in this passage that you're a mess, your life is a wreck, and that you need this good news, that you need this salvation, that you're poor and pitiable and naked and blind. Recognize that. And you recognize that today is the day of salvation, that you recognize tomorrow you could die, and it's been appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. See, if you die tomorrow, the judgment has come. It's not the year of the Lord's favor anymore if you die in your sins tomorrow. But if you die in Christ, you continue to leer the Lord's favor forever. You don't have any time to waste. You recognize that. And then you recognize that you need to look to Jesus in faith and repentance. What does that mean? You've got to turn from your sin and self-righteousness and attempts to do it yourself and turn to Jesus as your hope. Recognize he has paid it all, all of it. He's forgiven me for all my sins. He lived perfectly the life I failed to. He's come to preach good news. He didn't leave me with my mess of a story that I can write down and put on a big screen for everyone to see what a jacked up life I have. He gave me a good news, good news, a new story a story about Jesus and how he didn't live the wreck of a life I did and how he paid for the wreck of a life I lived and how he rose from the dead and promised me an eternal, jubilant year of the Lord's favor forever. If you recognize that, that's your desire, come talk to me after the service. I'd like to talk to you about what it means to walk with him and look to him. Come talk to me right after if you aren't sure if that's what you want to do, you're thinking, maybe I should do that, but I don't know. Go home and get on your face and cry out to Jesus to give you faith and stay there until he does. He will answer that prayer guaranteed. 
Finally, if you're already a believer in Jesus, in other words, you're someone who's been born again and who's walking with him, you've got to be reminded what your Savior came to do all the time, every week. That's why we preach the gospel every week here. I will never stop with the law and your condemnation and the bad news. We will always come to Jesus because we, as believers, need to hear it again and again and again so we don't slip into a life of self-atonement where we try to make ourselves right with God through our own works, but we live a life of gratitude for the grace he's shown us in Christ. And that we cling to him more tightly and we have joy that the Lord has chosen this year in Christ to show us favor. Hear that? This is the year of the Lord's favor to you. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that you would, that you would bless us through your word, that you would work by the power of your spirit, that our minds and hearts, that we would look to Jesus, that we would be thankful that this is the year of his favor understand the good news that he brings we proclaim it to other people father we pray for the people here who don't know you who aren't looking to your son in faith we pray that you would work powerfully in them that they would we know that you came to seek and save those who were lost you came to proclaim the year of the lord's favor to them father we pray that you would open their eyes so they would see that you would make them rich in you because they're poor without you Father, you'd clothe them with your righteousness because they're naked apart from you. Father, we, we ask that you would do this work. Set us free from the power of sin as you have the penalty. And Father, let your son return soon so that we're set free from the presence of it. That you would be exalted. We ask that you would do this work. In Jesus' name, amen.